It can be hard to know what our kids are really thinking and feeling. But when we encourage kids to engage with us in conversation, and when we lean in and actively listen, we inevitably learn something that helps us do better by them. Welcome to Dear Highlights, the podcast inspired by letters and emails from kids who write to highlights, seeking a listening ear and a little guidance as they wind their way through childhood. A short, sweet season, but also a period of heavy lifting for kids. I'm Christine French-Cully, Editor-in-Chief of Highlights and your podcast host. I'm joined by Hilary Bates, our podcast producer and thoughtful mom of two. We're here to amplify the voices of children and to explore with expert guests many of the issues that kids and families wrestle with regularly. We're glad you've joined us. Dear Highlights, my mom and dad have been separated for about a month. I have two guests. I get keys to the world. Hillary, thanks for joining me again for another episode of Dear Highlights. Our conversation today covers a subject that some parents may find a little vexing, and they may be thinking about it a little differently than previous generations due to some of the headlines they see almost daily. I tend to think that's a good thing because important subjects deserve our best efforts at thoughtful attention. When we approach these subjects open-mindedly, we quite often learn something that's really helpful. And certainly that's what we hope will happen today in this conversation about talking to kids about our country's history of slavery. Now, we don't often hear from kids directly on this topic, but we hear from parents saying that this is a growing family conversation. Yeah, Chris, you and I get the honor of answering kids' mail along with some other staff at Highlights, but a smaller part of our job is we also answer letters from parents, and we have seen a real uptick in parents writing us with concerns and questions about how we're sharing stories about American history, especially hard history like slavery. When we were thinking about how to do this topic, we really wanted, instead of having grown-ups weigh in on it more in sort of the conversations that you see in the newspaper, we wanted to talk to someone whose job day in and day out was talking to students about the history of slavery so that she could bring in for us children's voices. What are the things they care about? What do they ask about? And how do they generally react to this kind of topic? Because we believe that when you really listen to kids, that grounds conversations um, about them in the best possible way. So we're so excited today to have Amber Mitchell join us. She is the Director of Education at the Whitney Plantation Museum, which is in Louisiana, which shares the story of the enslaved people who at one time lived on the Whitney Plantation. And she works day in and day out directly with kids, all the school groups that come through and uh, we were just so excited to have this conversation with her uh, to, to learn from what she can tell us about those interactions. I'm really excited about this conversation. So let's get to it. Amber, welcome to Dear Highlights. Thanks for joining us. Let's begin by talking a little bit about you. What drew you to history? Were you interested in it as a child? Sure. So, yeah, I was um, one of those kids who had to know about everything and anything. And so and my parents, who uh, 
were just amazing at saying, okay, well, we don't know a lot about that, but we aren't going to stop you from learning about it. Uh, really encourage myself and my little sister to take time out to explore things that interest us. So ranging from Egyptology to marine biology to all the things in between and all the crazy stuff that most people had never heard of, but kids often seem to find. And so what led me to history was actually museums. And so I spent lots of time as a child during school breaks at the Detroit Historical Society and the Detroit Institute of Arts and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in my hometown, Detroit, Michigan. And uh, they really drove me to be not just interested in my own history as a Detroiter, as an African-American or as a woman, but in the history of everyone. Um, and really uh, got me interested in wanting to teach people on how to be more interested in, in history. So that's what really brought me into the fold. And I never really looked back. Why do you think history matters? I mean, what is the point of teaching history to kids? So history matters because where we come from matters. Um, where And when I say we, I mean we as individuals, as families, as communities, as societies, etc. You know, as the circle becomes bigger, all of that matters. And leaving behind a better world that's informed by what we learned from um, our past uh, triumphs and our past challenges um, makes sure that we leave a better world behind for our kids and our grandkids. Um, and that all truly matters to me. Um, and kids, kids are our future. Um, kids are the reason that uh, we do a lot of crazy things <laughs> within the society and within uh, uh, our world. And we want to make sure that our kids are as informed as they can be about where our society has come from so that they can create a better one for themselves. Um, kids are sponges. They want to know anything and everything, and especially how they fit into the larger world around them, how they relate to each other, how they relate to themselves. And um, as we live in a, a more, even more global community than really from when I was a kid um, and when all of us were you know, even younger than that, uh, you know, teaching kids history, no matter how troubling or how dark it might be, really just helps them to understand the climate of the world that they're living in and how to relate to not just each other, but to themselves. So history is so important uh, in yeah. teaching our kids uh, how not just to interact with history, but how to know uh, what good history looks like um, and how to uh, make informed decisions for themselves it helps them be a good citizen. You know, Amber, I was a history major, um, so I also was a kid growing up who had a lot of interest in history. And I think one of the things I hear in your answer is connecting the past with the present with the future, um, that there is a through line for that. I also had a friend once who thought that you could know a lot about a person by what they had studied in college. And what he said about us history majors is, we like context work, you know. Um, uh, I think that's interesting. I think that's definitely true of me. Maybe that maybe you feel like that's true of you too. I'm curious what you feel like kids often respond to about history, maybe even those that aren't going to grow up and study it. Um, what is like their curiosity? You know, what are the kinds of things they ask? Um, you know, what what do you hear most commonly from students who come in and, and where are they coming from about wanting to understand the past? Sure. So I think like 
all kids. I mean, and even adults too. We're all nosy. We're busybodies. We want to know what's going on. What's the tea, right? So, um, you know, what we often are getting, um, especially at Whitney, our kids asking, they ask the most random stuff, which makes it fun because you never get the same group twice, right? Um, especially us being, Whitney being in um, deep South Louisiana in a very rural area. We're getting lots of kids who are coming from bigger cities, who are coming from up North, who are coming from um, even com the communities around us who are asking, you know, did they have phones, Wi-Fi? You know, was it really this hot during all this time? They didn't have AC during all this either, you know? And we also, of course, always get the kids who are like, well, I wouldn't have been part of that because of X, Y, and Z, you know? Uh, and what we tend to to get out of those conversations with kids is that they're trying to see um, see how they fit within and their family fits within this overarching story of not just slavery within um, Southeast Louisiana, but within the cultural landscape and the cultural history of the United States. Um, we often think of ourselves and hear our, our country described as a melting pot or a salad bowl, which is often what I think about it as. Um, but we we have such unique stories that um, that, you know, have combined in a way that makes us makes Americans, American society so much different from other places throughout the world. This American experiment um, that uh, was started to be undertaken many, many years ago from many, from where any of our children, um, you know, can really even think about, um, they want to know where we come from. They want to know why we're here and how they can be a participate, a participant in this great American story, um, and see themselves. Uh, but also, you know, kids love stories of resistance. Kids love to hear about how, um, an underdog, whether that be, um, you know, an individual or a collective of people, they want to hear how those folks overcame. Um, and because uh, they often are seeing themselves um, going through a lot of the similar issues or can see themselves in the stories that are being told about the past um, and thinking about, well, how can I apply these principles, and I'm putting in a very adult terms, these principles from this particular historical event um, to their own lives. And we might not be thinking about it in that, you know, they might, not, they might, excuse me, students might not be thinking about that in those very technical terms, but they are trying to um, exercise their, uh, their uh, uh, individuality through exploring what happened to, um, to our communities in the past. Yeah. Telling stories is such a great way to communicate some of those lessons. Can you share with us a couple of the stories of the lives of the enslaved people who lived at the Whitney Plantation? A couple of the stories that really seems to resonate with the kids who visit your museum? Sure. So just a little bit of background. Whitney Plantation has been in existence as a, um, as a, uh, a museum plantation historic site uh, since about 2014. The end of 2014 is when we got started. But the site itself um, was uh, formulated in 1752 as Habitation Heidel. Um, Heidel is the name of the family who um, who bought uh, that or took over the track of land um, and also owned several hundreds of people who, who lived and worked 
um, and survived on that uh, that plot of land. Um, over 300 people per year between 1752 and 1865. So we're talking about a very long period of time with uh, several different generations of this same family owning this plantation. Um, as I mentioned, there would have been over 300 people who were working the lands here at any given time. We have to also remember that we are, Whitney Plantation is situated along the Great River Road, right next to the Mississippi River um, here in Louisiana, just an hour outside of New Orleans, if we're thinking about it in modern um, terms of driving by car. Um, and so we are within plantation country. Next door on either side of Whitney Plantation are several other plantations that also owned um, owned uh, people uh, who worked uh, these lands and really were the reason behind why the wealth that was created from the crops that were um, grown on site. Habitation Heidel was a sugar and rice plantation, both of which being very labor-intensive crops. Um, so enslaved people would have worked from sunup to sundown throughout the year and in 24-hour shifts during the reaping season to plant, grow, harvest, and process um, the uh, sugar cane, turning it into molasses, sugar, and bagus, which is a type of trash that was used to fuel um, the uh, boiler houses that um, process the sugar. Um, it's very dangerous work um, with people being worked in that very hot Louisiana sun with no breaks, you know, 90 degree weather and up uh, throughout most of the year using nothing but uh, cane knives and their uncovered hands to really work with the sharp grass and in the heat of boiler houses. Um, however, these people were very skilled. Um, in these particular groups of enslaved people coming from what we now think of as Central and West Africa um, were captured for very particular reasons, often because they worked very similar jobs in, um, uh, in their uh, native places, um, specifically the Wolof, uh, the Mina, uh, as well as the Bambara peoples of Central and Western Africa. Um, and so, you know, they were very skilled at what they did. Um, they were able to command very much top dollar in the marketplace if they were sold by their enslaver. Um, being able to uh, command top dollar means, means that uh, your job is very, very important. Um, and so today especially if we think about how sugar is still processed here in Louisiana, not obviously not by enslaved people, um, but by um, modern um, industrial uh, machines and stuff, these folks would have been considered engineers, chemists, and food scientists. Um, so that's something that I think uh, is very, uh, uh, brings it home for a lot of kids that these are really uh, skillful jobs that are happening today um, and that all this is connected. enslaved uh, is to have your life, your children, your skills never really be your own. So um, even though oftentimes enslaved people, when they had time to themselves, were creating their own families, uh, cultivating uh, food for themselves, um, creating their own uniquely Creole culture with the mix of the various African uh, tribal groups that were brought onto uh, plantation sites, as well as uh, French, Spanish, a little bit of German, because in where we are is called the Second German Coast in Louisiana, um, as well as the Native groups that were around. Um, these are they're creating a very uh, 
unique culture that uh, is found nowhere else in the world. Um, and they're also visiting family on other plantations around. Uh, there's a whole, this is a whole slave society. This is a whole culture of, of uh, people who are um, in, uh, attached unfairly to this land, to, these, uh, to this work. Um, but they're also able to hire themselves out to purchase their own freedom, to make their own money, to do what they what they wish, including purchase their own freedom. And so, um, you know, oftentimes enslaved people had to give math their um, masters cuts of uh, their income from themselves, hiring themselves out. You could always be restricted from seeing your family or friends. Um, and in fact, the risk of being sold away was always a factor, especially um, being that a plantation is a business. And if the income from crop sales did not match up at the end of the season, well, what's your biggest resource on a plantation? It's your human your human property. Um, and so a family could wake up together and that night be broken up and never see each other again. And so that often led to uh, folks resisting in all kinds of ways. Um, through smaller means like truancy, you know, we all kind of decide, well, I'm not working today. I don't feel like it and I'm not going to call off. Or, you know, my mom told me uh, to do the dishes. I'm not going to do them right now. I'll wait until 10 o'clock tonight to do them just because I can. People were doing that at the same time as well during slavery, um, withholding their work, like I was just mentioning, um, you know, deciding they're going to skip out on doing work. That's what truancy is. So, like, if you're skipping class, that's truancy. Same thing, right? Um, and then, of course, larger methods like running away. One of the very uh, big historical events of our area that we uh, talk about at Whitney Plantation is through our monument to the 1811 Slave Rebellion, which was the largest slave revolt in American history that started just across the river from us. Um, and during this revolt in 1811, over 500 enslaved men and women marched from St. John Parish, where we are, towards New Orleans, uh, freeing those enslaved people that they came across and killing enslavers and militias who attempted to stop them. Um, ultimately, they were they uh, the rebellion was uh, quelled just outside of New Orleans, uh, but the um, ultimate. Um, the ultimate lesson that was learned about that was that these were just ordinary people. These were folks who were tired of being uh, treated unfairly. They were tired of being always at risk of being sold, of never having things for themselves, and they decided to stand up for themselves. And so kids get a lot out of this conversation. It's a very gruesome conversation. The way that we present it at the Whitney uh can be a very dark way and very jarring way of, of talking about this history, but it is um, powerful for uh, a lot of families, individuals, and students who come in to hear about how the lengths that people took to, um, to gain and attempt to gain their freedom and exercising their rights as individuals. When kids hear these stories, what are some of the questions they ask? Uh, when kids hear these stories, they're often asking about why would people keep other people like this? Why would white people treat black people this way? Why would a white mother who owned uh, enslaved other enslaved mothers sell a mom away from her baby? Um, and oftentimes these are very difficult questions to answer. Um, and often it's because humans do terrible things to other humans. Um, and kids understand that. 
but they also can see how far we as a culture have come and why it's important to learn more about these really difficult things so that they can uh, be better people in the future. You know, as a magazine that shares stories from history and, you know, Chris and I talk a lot on this podcast about how we answer mail from kids, we also answer mail from grownups to the magazine. And we have certainly seen an uptick in adults' interest around how stories about history are being taught to children. And I think that um, they seem to have an underlying concern about whether we're depicting the American story as a story of good people or bad people. You know, when we talked before, you said something, you said that history is full of contradictions. Um, In your experience as a history educator who is actually there day in and day out, seeing kids encounter the story of American slavery. Um, Is it your experience that that is easy for kids to understand that moral complexity of the past and the present? I would say, yeah. Um, We uh, sell our kids short very often on what um, they will understand, what they do understand, and what they can understand. Um, and I'm here to say that as long as you trust trust your kid to ask good questions and foster uh, that sense of curiosity in them, they can understand just about anything, especially if we, of course, speak on things on a level that they can understand. Of course, it has to be age appropriate and um, it has to, you know, really hit on particular uh particular things that are just in line with with what they can and can't understand depending on their age level. Um, What we're really combating against as history educators aren't the kids who are feeling quote unquote bad about what have happened. It's adults. Um, It's adults feeling uncomfortable about the legacy of this history, about not knowing really what the history is themselves and not having enough knowledge about how to talk about it. Um, especially the legacy of this history as it relates to today, you know, the history of race, the history of class, history of gender, history of Jim Crow, um, the history of how we, how our societies all have broken down um, into, uh, you know, various communities, the history of redlining. There's so much that uh, slavery is a root of within this country and people just really don't, um, they don't feel comfortable speaking about that long-term history because they don't know enough. Um, And so, you know, we can't legislate ourselves from historical events and their long impact to today. We can't legislate ourselves out of uh, feeling uncomfortable. That uncomfortable moment is where the learning happens, right? So what we can do is to learn more about the past and how it affects us today so that we can be better stewards of each other and our world for tomorrow. Historically minded kids are active, critical thinking citizens. We want critical thinkers. We want uh, our future lawyers, doctors, um, emergency workers, teachers. We want them to be able to think critically about their world and their place in it. And history does that no matter how dark, difficult, or challenging it is. Um, And oftentimes it's our parents, our adults in our in our children's lives who just aren't, uh, who don't feel comfortable with saying, I don't know. 
And I'm here to tell you, I say it all the time as a historian. I have no clue. I don't know what I'm talking. I don't know what this is. I have no idea. But you know what we can do? We can learn together. Yeah. We often at Highlights talk about how kids don't really expect us to have all the answers, but they do welcome our guidance and and welcome exploring and and looking for answers together, as you say. Um, So yes, a lot of parents feel uncomfortable talking to kids about history just because of their own lack of knowledge. Amber, you generously shared with us a list of resources for parents who want to explore some of these ideas with their kids. And we won't share them here on air, but we will include them in this episode's show notes. So thank you very much for that. When we talked earlier, you shared that as a history educator, one of the things that you want kids to understand is the power of people in groups, not just extraordinary individuals. Can you say more about that, especially as it relates to the stories that kids hear about slavery? Sure. So just to give a little background, traditionally, um, this is the way that I was taught when I was in school and probably how a lot of other people were taught, is that history is taught through the lens of a good versus bad, hero versus villain. And it also, you know, tends to uplift a great individual person. So your Martin Luther Kings, your uh, George Washingtons, your uh, 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 George Washington Carvers, those individuals, when really history is a lot more complex. History is, instead of black and white, it's shades of gray with individuals who are parts of collectives leading the ch- leading the change. So as I mentioned, you know, we often hear a lot about Martin Luther King as an individual, but we don't really hear a lot about, or at least at a particular level, especially kids, you don't hear a lot about the Southern uh, Southern Leadership Conference uh, that was his collective of people who were making change throughout the South. We don't often hear about Bayard Rustin, who taught Dr. Martin Luther King and introduced him to the concept of nonviolent uh, resistance. Um, we often don't hear about people like A.G. Gaston, who was a Black millionaire in Alabama who helped fund Martin Luther King uh, during uh, the Birmingham uh, Civil Rights Movement of 1963. It's a collective of different kinds of people who are working both out front, behind, and with that make sure that these movements happen and that change happens. One person can be a catalyst and can become a symbol. But however, kids really respond to seeing individuals work together as a collective to create change because that shows them that they can do it too. It doesn't take just one person to make change. We can all do it no matter at what level we are. And it doesn't matter how young you are, right? Um, And at Whitney, what kids are learning is that people collectively, individually, have the power to make a difference for themselves, their communities, and society as a whole. Um, The stories that make up the histories that we tell don't happen in a vacuum. Um, When we look at a community story, like if we're looking at the story of the people um, at Whitney Plantation, it's often mirroring a larger story within a society, within a country, within a world. Because everyone is looking at each other. Um, people are being inspired by each other to break their bonds and reach for their freedoms on their own, free, reach for their own freedoms from their own oppressions. And to me, that's the beauty of history. It's a conversation that we as humans are having with each other globally, even if we don't know that it's happening in the moment. And it's a conversation that is constantly changing as we get further and further away from that event. 
and it's teaching others as it goes on. That's what I love about history is that moment. I love to hear you talk about that because I think (laughs) one of the things that Highlights knows about kids is that they they want the world to be fair and they want the world to be kind. And we often feel that what we can offer them is to show them that they have the power to impact that. Each one of them has the power to impact that. And I think um, what you're talking about is how history can empower people to see the power they have as an individual to make the world that they want. And that is also what I find beautiful about history and what I find beautiful about kids. I mean, kids kids are my favorite people to teach. I mean, they they get it. They get it, I tell you. It's the adults that have kind of lost that sense of wonder or that sense of curiosity or that sense of what is fair and what is unfair. Or And oftentimes when I'm on tours, it's the children that are leading the adults to have these hard conversations and getting them more interested in learning about their own history. And personally, that's how, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, that's how I got interested in history. And that's how I hope that other people are getting interested in history is the conversations that they're having with their children. Yeah. Amber, one more question before we um, say goodbye to you. So we all agree kids are uh, optimistic and hopeful and and our collective future. And um, I, I believe that kids can grow and will grow to become people who make the world a better place. If we believe, if if we as a society believe that children are the world's most important people, what would we do differently? That's a good question. I believe that we would give children the space to ask questions even when it hurts, even when the answer hurts, even when we don't know the answer. Amber, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You can learn more about kids' hopes and dreams and their worries and fears from the book, Dear Highlights, What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids, available on highlights.com or wherever you buy your books. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe and share the link with your friends. Special thanks to the producer of this podcast, Hilary Bates, and also to our audio engineer, Ted Weckbacher.